After the Shasta disaster coming at you of 1999, and yet another slate of shows that failed to make it past its first season, UPN was in the throes of chaos. As we've stated in the past two shows, the network had its fair share of troubles in its first few years on the air, thanks in large part to seeking out an identity for itself that would stand out among its major competitors, yet still be strong enough so that people would actually watch most of what little entertainment the network had to offer. Sure, they still had some things to be proud about thanks to its ever-expanding line of urban-based sitcoms, its Thursday nights that got rented out to the WWE, and of course, anything with the words Star Trek attached to it. But if the network was to attract any major star power of any kind, it had to make a series of bold and calculated moves that would spark the right attention. One of the biggest moves happened at the turn of the century. And on that note, I'm going to defer the next few minutes to somebody who probably knows a lot more about the history of UPN on a business standpoint than I ever intend to do. By special arrangement with his YouTube channel, I'm going to let one of my new favorite TV historians tell this part of the story, a part that's already featured in his two-part retrospective on the UPN network. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Connor Higgins. After Fox showed that the status quo of three major broadcast networks wasn't immune to invasion by a fledgling network, Paramount piped up, took notice, and partnered with a station group, Chris Craft Industries, to form the United Paramount Network, a broadcast network meant to go head-to-head with the Big Four. Though it started strong, by 1999, the network was languishing in sixth place, even behind another fledgling network, the WB. Seven short years later, UPN disappeared from the airwaves, and the Big Four is still just the Big Four. So why couldn't UPN replicate Fox's success? What could have possibly happened that led to the demise of a network that showed so much promise? Well, it all started with a merger between UPN's parent company, Viacom, and the CBS Corporation. Now, it's important to understand what both of these companies actually are. CBS, of course, had the TV network, but CBS Television was just a subset of a larger company, confusingly named the CBS Corporation, which had more goodies up its sleeve. The CBS Corporation is actually the same company that was known as Westinghouse until 1997. Westinghouse was an electric company, making a wide variety of things, but most known for things like appliances. They were also involved in broadcasting, and they were instrumental in the foundation of NBC. They also telecast the very first live TV broadcast in 1951, and they owned some radio and TV stations. But don't get me wrong, they were an electric company first. At least until 1990. After a lot of financial struggles and a new CEO, they sold off most of their electrical assets and invested $15 billion into the broadcasting business, which consisted of buying Infinity Radio, which owned the venerable Howard Stern Show, the Nashville Network CMT, and yes, CBS. Seeing as they weren't much of an electric company anymore, they renamed themselves the CBS Corporation in 1997. There were obvious benefits for both sides of the merger. The biggest reason it hadn't happened up to this point was a lingering FCC regulation that stated that one company was forbidden from owning more than one TV station in a given market. And since Viacom was the owner of several UPN stations, among others, and CBS owned and operated a bunch of stations nationwide, their hands were tied unless those rules got eliminated. And then, in August of 1999, the FCC threw them a bone. They allowed a company to own more than one station, but there were some asterisks. The legal situation surrounding UPN's position in the merger heated up. Chris Craft had sued to block the merger altogether because Viacom and Chris Craft included a clause in their contract that they were not to make a deal with a competing network. 
work. Viacom told them to cool it because the merger hadn't even gotten anywhere yet, but they also issued an ultimatum which was backed by the New York Supreme Court. Chris Kraft had two options. Sell their 50% share of UPN to Viacom, relinquishing control of the network to the new combined Viacom in return for $5 million, or buy back Viacom's 50% share at the cost of $5 million. Chris Kraft wanted nothing more than to keep the partnership alive. Their deep-pocketed partner was a great benefit to them. They kept fighting in the courtroom to dismantle the merger altogether, but the courts weren't having it. The FCC was also playing nice with Viacom and had made the allowance for them to own both CBS and UPN, so Chris Kraft was the only thing potentially standing in their way. Eventually, they had to make a decision. Knowing that they couldn't possibly support UPN, which had lost nearly a billion dollars in five years, they painstakingly gave up the network in full to Viacom. And just like that, Chris Kraft was out of the picture. Oh, okay. Not entirely, because all of those stations that Chris Kraft owned still had to carry UPN, or else there would be a huge issue for the network. Chris Kraft, when the merger was first proposed, was open to a total acquisition of all of its assets, including its stations, by Viacom. However, Viacom wasn't interested because they believed Chris Kraft's price of $3.1 billion to be too high, and negotiations were fruitless. After Viacom had issued the ultimatum, and Chris Kraft had sold off their stake of UPN, Chris Kraft once again tried to get Viacom to take the rest of their stuff as well. Viacom wanted wanted to, but the problem was the same, too high of a price. Chris Kraft found a suitor soon enough, and it was Fox television stations. They were willing to cough up the money to buy out Chris Kraft and the 10 huge stations that they owned. But since the Fox television stations and the Fox Broadcasting Company were owned by the Fox Entertainment Group, I know a lot of Foxes, uh, questions about whether the Fox Entertainment Group would use the Chris Kraft stations to broadcast Fox instead of UPN surfaced. If they had decided to do that, it would have been bad news for UPN because these stations included their New York and Los Angeles stations, and losing out on those two markets alone would be catastrophic. No TV network had ever succeeded without owning a network in those markets. Fox television stations was also going to cross that 35% of the nation threshold with their purchase, so the legality of the acquisition was brought into question. So, recognizing that UPN wouldn't survive if those stations ceased to carry it, Rupert Murdoch, the head of the Fox empire, said he would be open to negotiations with Viacom in regards to keeping the network on those stations. Viacom and Fox reached an agreement to keep UPN on the stations throughout 2003, which was a short-term deal with nothing about subsequent years included. Because of the nature of the deal, there was some uncertainty about the future of UPN. Murdoch even began to express wishes to buy out a stake of, or all, of UPN. Viacom squirmed and adamantly did not want that to happen, so the big Fox stations kept broadcasting Viacom's UPN as affiliates for the time being. Now that they had gotten that whole issue squared away, they had really gotten rid of Chris Kraft, and they rejoiced. Everybody got that? Good! Which brings us to the year 2003. UPN actually gained significant ground in the ratings due to not only the shocking acquisition of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the WB, or the fact that most of their affiliates now became corporate siblings with the more powerful Fox television stations, but more importantly, both moves wound up attracting reasonably sized stars and creatives alike to the network, resulting in programming that for the rest of the network's existence would be, at best, noteworthy to critics and viewers alike, and, at worst, would be mostly shows that actually didn't suck. Emphasis on mostly there. Nothing we can't do with your brains and my bar, little underarm juice. Talking about a recipe for success. You said it! Because Denny and Dwayne Muller are living the American dream! And now... Word on the street is, it's gonna be big. Stay tuned. Network television has never looked quite like this. It's UPN November. 
Intellihell. So now, for our final show of UPN November, we ask ourselves once again if people were too quick to trash on a TV show simply because there was one element from that show that pretty much dismissed it on the whole before it even had a chance in the first place. To answer that question, we must now travel to the year 1992. By that point in time, The Simpsons was at the zenith of its first decade on the air. While the mania it developed during its first few years cooled down considerably, the show was still one of the sharpest written on TV. In 1992, the show plucked a pair of writers from the Ivy Leagues. One, a Harvard Lampoon writer named Bill Oakley, and the other, a Stanford Chaparral writer named Josh Weinstein. By 1995, the show's seventh season, Credit for how sharp the show's writing would remain fell in the capable hands of the two men who worked their way up to the rank of executive producers and showrunners. Altogether in their tenure, both Oakley and Weinstein would pen episodes that would represent the best of times. Aurora Borealis, at this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. Mash it. No. And arguably the worst of times. I'm an imposter. That man is the real Seymour Skinner. When the duo left the show in the late 90s, they took their talents, ironically enough, to UPN's major competitor, the WB. During the primetime animation boom of the late 90s, the duo came up with a show that was as much criminally underrated as it was critically maligned, as Oakley and Weinstein would be the creative forces behind Mission Hill. A Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein production! In spite of the inter-network troubles that the show caused them, the duo kept on moving along. They would later be consultants for the original Fox run of Futurama, and I'm pretty sure they didn't really need the work since they were more than likely raking in a boatload of Simpsons residuals anyway. In fact, when you have a chance, go look for a documentary series from the Vice TV network called Icons Unearthed, and you'll hear what Oakley and Weinstein's contribution to the show was, aside from sharp writing. But the thing about being a creative in showbiz is the simple fact that you need to keep creating. And so, in the development year of 2002, Oakley and Weinstein embarked on their next idea when they found themselves working for Warner Brothers Television. This would be a live-action sitcom about a family, but I wouldn't exactly go calling it a family sitcom once I tell you the show's overall plot. It's the tale of two brothers named Dwayne and Denny, pause for obvious joke. Oh, hey, guys. Oh, hi, Denny. According to the Wikipedia entry on this show... These two brothers were blue-collared, wrestling-loving, light-hearted roofers with differing personalities. The fact that these two are wrestling fans gives us even money odds that their exploits will somehow tie in to UPN's cash cow of a Thursday night wrestling program. But I digress. The description goes on. Dwayne has a loud, in-your-face demeanor, while Denny is a quieter, more thoughtful, easygoing guy. The brothers live their lives to the fullest while dreaming of bigger and better futures though their fantasies are out of step with reality. All the while, they have a mother with the typical warm matronly personality that loves their sons no matter what kind of hijinks they get into. The only major thorn of contention for the boys, 
their mom's new stepfather named Roger, described as a clean-cut game show host who's the polar opposite of the boys. So, basically, it's a variation on the old odd-couple notion of can two polar opposites get along without driving each other crazy? And on the surface, that seems pretty generic for a sitcom, especially a sitcom that aired on UPN. So, naturally, whenever something like that happens, it's then up to the powers that be to try to find a way to make an otherwise generic sitcom stand out among the dozens that are on the air. What they needed was something that would be relatable to the modern-day audience of what looked to be the fall season of 2003. So, what exactly was popular back then? You cannot offer me this ring. I'm giving it to you. Don't catch me, photo. Well, Lord of the Rings was pretty big, but Amazon wouldn't get into the TV business for a few more years. Next. I love 50 Cent. Mm-mm. People did like Fiddy, and he would eventually have a bunch of TV shows based on his own life on other cable networks, but UPN already had plenty of urban sitcoms to spare. I think what this show needed was something a little broader as its gimmick. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hold it right there. Continue. You might be an imposter if you're wearing a trucker hat, not driving a John Deere, and you do not have a mullet to back it up. Sure enough, a mere three years after one of UPN's ex-presidents tried and failed to make a full-court press towards appealing to the blue-collar workers of middle America, it looked as though enough time had passed so that the network was willing to try it again. Only this time around, greenlighting a show that, aside from wrestling, appealed specifically to blue-collar middle America, right down to the haircuts. And thus, the mullets were born. Or at the very least, conceived, because now all we need are the right people to actually bring them to life. First, our two main mullets would be played by the best up-and-coming actors that UPN could afford. Big Brother Dwayne would be played by Michael Weaver, who, not unlike many others that we covered down here, managed to shake off the stigma of doing a not-so-good TV show and also go on to have a fruitful career on the TV guest star circuit for the past 20 years and counting. Most notably, some appearances on CSI, NCIS, and even some regular roles in Notes from the Underbelly, The Joe Schmo Show, and Diary of a Future President. His brother, Denny... Oh, hi, Denny would be played by David Hornsby. Copy and paste the fact that he made a living on the guest star circuit, including the Joe Schmo show, but also add to that the longest-running character that he would play on a TV show, Rickety Cricket on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm working on my moves. What moves? For my musical. I'm writing a musical, you guys. It's about life on the streets. Archangel has to live on the streets and fight crime. You guys, you gotta make it sexy. Hips and nips. Otherwise, I'm not eating. Of course, regardless of what TV network any show would air on, it would be impossible to get people to tune in if it were entirely full of relative unknowns in the cast. So, naturally, the show needed to cast some veterans as well, one of which is no stranger to sitcoms. Baby, if you've ever wondered... I study trivia. That's why I know everything there is to know about you, Herb. (laughs) If you know your sitcom history... You know who Lonnie Anderson is, the object of affection for a generation of baby boomers who weren't smart enough to choose Bailey Quarters over her Jennifer Marlowe. 
Aside from WKRP, however, Anderson has logged quite the career. From playing Jane Mansfield opposite a still-to-be-famous Arnold Schwarzenegger, to her long-running and tumultuous relationship with Burt Reynolds, she's maintained a presence on TV to this very day, as did our next participant, the man who would play Lonnie's husband and reluctant stepfather to our mulleted heroes. That's a very nice jacket. Very soft. Huge button flaps, cargo pockets, drawstring waist, deep by swing vents in the back, perfect for jumping into a gondola. How do you know all that? That's my coat. You mean... I'm Jay Peters. John O'Hurley has maintained a presence on stage and screen for the better part of the past four decades. Guest star roles? Of course. Game show host and MC for various dog shows? Certainly. But were it not for his recurring role as fashion magnate Jay Peterman on Seinfeld late in the show's run, O'Hurley would probably still be on the guest star circuit in a lesser capacity these days. But since he already hosted a revival of To Tell the Truth by the time this show aired, the role of prim, proper, and sometimes stuffy game show host Roger Heidecker seemed like a tailor-made role for him. But no matter how many good things there were about this show, even before it aired, it's going to have one here of a time trying to escape certain stigmas. In particular, would anybody watch a show with rural sensibilities on a network that, up to the end of its existence, still catered largely to urban audiences? Not unlike what Dean Valentine attempted to do when he was in charge of the network in the late 90s. To hedge some bets, the powers that be at UPN scheduled this show on a night when other networks' shows, while still popular, were on its last legs, thus giving UPN a fighting chance. Granted, those shows that were on their last legs were NYPD Blue, Frasier, various dramas on CBS, and also one show that was just starting out, some kind of upstart singing contest on Fox later that winter. Which, incidentally enough, UPN rejected when it was pitched to them, which you can hear more about in Connor Higgins's UPN retrospective on the YouTube channel of the same name. But as far as our subject goes, not unlike Shasta McNasty, this show would actually have a sneak preview debut immediately after what was still UPN's biggest ratings grabber, after WWE SmackDown. But I'm pretty sure this show will do just fine on its own merits, without catering too much to the wrestling crowd. Please, get real talk to As I was saying, we're going to give the mullets a much-needed haircut... After the break. When the sun goes down and the heat rolls around, that's the time I find. Got blue ribbon on my mind. I got blue ribbon on my mind. America's premium beer since 1844. Pabst, a lot to look forward to. 
This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Brought together by destiny. People said it'd never work. But somehow, one plus one equals three. The Texican Whopper, the taste of Texas with a little spicy Mexican. To understand it, you must try The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. September 11th, 2003. Uh, You know what? I'm just going to use my skip historical context free card for this one because I'm pretty sure we all know what happened two years earlier. We hope. And at 9.30... 8.30 Central, UPN returns to Middle America, or at least in the case of this sitcom, suburban Southern California, to see a pair of fun-loving brothers getting into some shenanigans. And folks, nothing screams confidence more than using the theme to 2001 A Space Odyssey to introduce yourself. Especially since all it is that the duo is doing is getting to the top of a roof for their first fix-up job. Oh yeah, psyched. New roofing job. Guess I'm feeling okay about it. Feeling okay? You should be feeling psyched, stoked, and 1,000% in freaking thews. Today, we're just fixing a roof, but it's only the first step. After roofing comes contracting, then construction, casino operation, all-around real estate moguling, sports team ownership, sexy young trophy wives, political power, and bam! An American dynasty is born! All hail the boys! I'm strongly resisting the urge to say anything political here, especially since this show drops two weeks after midterm elections and we're recording this two days before it happens. So for now, we can either call it a harbinger for things to come or a prediction with the potency of a magic eight ball. In the meantime, just exactly how good are these guys at roofing? This roof is our stairway to the stars! Okay, I'm ready to rock and roll! Well, I gotta give him credit for one thing. At least he's optimistic when, in actuality, he's a prime candidate for the Peter Principle. As we let the credits roll, we're once again treated to... Dude stuff! Not unlike Shasta McNasty. Only this time around, at least the credits in this show are legible, but the dude imagery is even more random, yet makes all the sense in the world. You've got jet-powered funny cars, wet bikini ladies, barbecue, monster trucks, more bikinis, speedboats, wrestling, more barbecue, even more bikinis, and our two protagonists freeze-framing their way through it all while acting as visual aids as to what their hairstyle is all about. Business in the front, party in the back. You know... Dude, stop! We get one line. We got a fire. 
Act 1 begins with our mulleted dudes enjoying some of the finer things in life with their friends, who, coincidentally, also happen to be sporting mullets. Or in this case, one guy with a mullet and another guy with a jerry curl. But about those finer things in life... Who could tell me the three sweetest words in the English language? Miller, genuine, draft. Bacon, double, cheeseburger. Pamela Anderson mullet. Wrong. Everyone knows the three sweetest words? A girl's gone wild! Oh, goddamn! Just as a reminder... This show was created by two people who were around during the zenith years of The Simpsons. Two people who were Ivy League graduates. A Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein production! As we now see Mommy Anderson enter the scene to break up the boys' extracurricular activity. You cannot go sneaking up on us. I nearly gave you a karate chop. Roger and I just came by to drop off your laundry. Oh, hi, Gordo. Hi, Bill. How you been, Mrs. Mullet? You can call me Mandy. Besides, I'm not Mrs. Mullet anymore. I'm officially hyphenated. I'm Mrs. Mullet Heidecker now. Look out! Here comes the Heidecker! And Satan bless her for trying and even committing to the bit here, but Lonnie Anderson kind of sticks out like a sore thumb on this show. At least the addition of John O'Hurley as an uptight game show host makes sense because, for a show like this, you need to have somebody around to clash with another person's lifestyle. That's where the main conflict is, which we'll see in a second. Lonnie, I think, may have been miscast for the role. I think she might have been a little too high class in the real world to play the mother of people who seem to be represented, proudly, I might add, as a much lower class. I'm not going to name names, but in the history of television, especially shows about those in the lower class, who else would you see as the mother to these mulleted individuals? Nah, too obvious. It's just me. But don't worry, I'll make you forget all about food. Honey, you've already done that. I think she was busy with another show at the time. You know, every time I go in Russell's Pharmacy, I spend 15 or $20. That candy bar you took cost 50 cents. You saved me some money. Thank you. Oh, well, I guess we're stuck with Lonnie. As we now meet her better half, Roger, let's just say if you know what John O'Hurley is capable of, you're way ahead of me. But for the record, let's see how he handles his stepsons. Alrighty then. <laughs> just put the shirts over here and uh, I'll let you two deal with the jock straps. Do I know you from somewhere? You look real familiar. Roger is a TV personality. Yes, I'm the host of Quizzedry. <laughs> the game show. You sure you're not the guy who repossessed my car? With your stinky old Monza. This man gives cars away. Money, trips, Broy Hill furniture that shows the Super Bowl for eggheads. Uh, Ken Jennings, Mayim Bialik, and the ghosts of Alex Trebek and Art Fleming would like to have a word with you after the show. She's a real poindexter. Well, I had a lot of time to read when I was a liposuction technician. Anyway, I went on quizard reads. Actually, it was the first time that I have ever fallen in love with a contestant, so naturally we had to disqualify her. <laughs> Uh, you did walk away with a lovely parting gift. I got just the prize I wanted. A lifetime supply of Rogers. So she won Soiling Green? 
It's the greatest game show love story of all time. Roger, man, can I ask you a question? It's kind of personal. You think you can give me a copy of that tape when you ask that woman what's the strangest place you ever made whoopee and she said up the butt? That's what's me. That was another show into And thank you, John O'Hurley, for being the voice of reason there. Uh, here's the clip that he was talking about, by the way. Girls, tell me where specifically is the weirdest place that you personally, girls, have ever gotten the urge to make whoopee? In the <laughs> now that we've introduced everybody, I'm all but certain that there's a plot in here somewhere, right? Bet you don't need anything else, huh? Now, you boys know you have the one thing I can never get enough of. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Fear me, honey. We were just wondering, because, you know, your birthday's coming up Saturday. Well, why don't you just surprise me? You two always come up with the best birthday surprises. Go. Go. I know a tape you can get me. The time you said, come on down, and that woman started jumping up and going all crazy, and a boob flew out. Okay, speaking as a life-and-death-long game show fan, I think this show is just toying with me at this point. Play it! Yolanda Bowsley, come on down! I have a feeling that this is not legitimate. I know, I know you truly love me, but you don't really love me this much, do you? Bob, they have given their all for you. So the plot, I'm guessing, is that little Miss Mullet has a birthday coming up, and it's up to the boys to do something special for her. Pretty boilerplate sitcom plot, but it is only the first episode. Naturally, they want to start with a softball approach to things, as we now see the boys at a local convenience store, where more musings on the modern world takes place, and... (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. It's more pandering to the so-called blue-collar audience. In this case, O'Hurley supposedly gives the boys money to buy their mom's present, which hurts Dwayne right in the pride. Who the hell's that Roger think he is? Giving us money to buy our own mom a birthday present? How much was it? I don't know. Not even gonna open the envelope. We don't need his money. We're big-time roofers, bro. Damn straight. We got the longest ladder in San Fernando Valley. (laughs) Roger know that if he ever made an ounce of effort instead of just throwing his money around like Ronald McDonald. So naturally, this motivates the boys to find something of great meaning to their mother. So I'm thinking stuff like a spa day or a casual brunch or... WrestleMania tickets! Obvious pandering to UPN's biggest audience. Have I mentioned this premiered right after SmackDown? Anyway... This brings us to the main idea. How can the boys get their hands on some tickets to an event that's likely sold out by now? Is it going to be the sitcom standard harebrained scheme, like, say, sneaking in disguised as a wrestler nobody's heard of, or try to con an existing ticket holder out of their tickets for the right price, or... You know, they're giving away tickets on the radio. Melanie. Hey, you, uh... Working the day shift now? Introduce an unlikely voice of reason on a show that seems to be lacking in reason. Odd twist, but eh, I'll take it. This is Melanie, one of the employees of the convenience store played by another durable character actress, Ann Stedman. 
The character will remain Denny Mullet's perpetual crush for the run of the series. But at the same time, if Mary Lynn Ricecup slash Jolie Jenkins was supposed to be the Jiminy Cricket for Shasta McNasty, this lady is supposed to be the same for our two heroes. Yeah, I couldn't handle the nights anymore. Every single customer was like Mr. Gross Drunken Freak. We just call him Denny for short. So, anyway, um, you were saying about the WrestleMania tickets? They're giving away four front row seats on Power 99. The Top 40 station? Damn, that is non-stop Pucatronic, Justin Timberturd, Christina Scangular, Brittany Kylie, J-Lo, Tunes from Goose. To be fair to that semblance of a joke, that kind of music was a pretty easy target back then. But history, and also modern-day times, has taught us better, as we now try to see if our two mullet men know how to use a phone. And I'm just going to go ahead and skip the song that we hear in the Waiting to Call montage, because, number one, we are being simulcast on YouTube, and number two, I don't want that song to become Hell's Next Ringtone. Eventually, we get to Rock You Like a Hurricane by the Scorpions, which we will also not play because, again, we're simulcasting on YouTube this year. So, let's just get to the punchline. After being awake for 72 hours straight, the song finally plays only for the mullets to be dead asleep on the roof as it's playing. To say that hilarity ensues for the next few moments is... charitable at best. Oh, crap! I'm blanking. What's the rest of the number? 999. No, I got that. What's the last part? 999. 999. 999. Slow down. What was after the nine? Just keep dialing nine until somebody answers. Here, give me that. Wait. Hello. Yes, this is dated wedding mullet. We won. How freaking stand it. <laughs> Better watch your ass, world, because nothing's going to stop the mullet. Finally! Act 2 begins with the boys celebrating their win, and at the same time, planting the seed for a storyline that would eventually pay off much later in the show's run. You dog! You like her, don't you? Yeah. I like her from the first time we saw her. I like her smile, and I love the way she smells. Like nachos. I smell like nachos. The Romans, dude. Carpe Diaz. Seize the Diaz. If you meet Cameron Diaz, you gotta grab her right then and there, cause you're not gonna get him another shot. Now there she is. What are you gonna do? I'm gonna wait for the right moment. You have been a stubborn SOB ever since mom dropped you on your head. You're the one who got dropped on the head. Huh? Oh yeah. Two Ivy League graduates wrote. This. A Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein production! As we now arrive at the moment where the two Sunny Boys give Mom the gift of wrestling. Come on in, boys. The party's just getting started. Roger? Dude, you throwing a party for Mom and you didn't invite us? Of course I invited you. I gave you the invitation last week. What invitation? To your mother's surprise dinner party. I couldn't mention anything in front of her, naturally, so I slipped you the envelope. Envelope. Right. You see, most people like to open those, but we just like to crumple them up and get mad. 
Unfortunately, we get a misunderstanding that even Three's company would leave the room in a huff over. And instead of getting bogged down with a case of class warfare, you know, the snobs versus the blue collars, the stuffed shirts versus the rednecks, La Bernadette versus Golden Corral, you get the picture. Oh, you look just fine. You've got shoes, you've got shirts. If it's good enough for Taco Bell, it's good enough for me. And the thing is... I have no complaints about a story like this being told in any medium. Partly because Tales of Class Warfare has been a staple in many forms of media, possibly since words could even be transcribed to people. It's always a case of one side clashing with the other until ultimately both sides find some common ground. And the story itself is not limited to comedy. Hell, one of the biggest TV shows to debut the same year that this one did practically based its entire series on such a thing, only with drama and much more memorable dialogue. Welcome to the OC, bitch. Wasn't that, isn't that the catchphrase? Am I right? Was that the cat? Welcome to the OC, bitch. So now, the question isn't so much the quality of the content, but rather, how do they use this content in their own way without making themselves look foolish? Perhaps we should hear from her two sons first. Wayne, is there something you would like to say? Damn straight. Mom, we got a big surprise for you, but it's real time sensitive. Dude, so we... shut up. You're going to put Mom in an awkward position. I'll put you in an awkward position. <laughs> no, please don't a great dinner, Raj. Too bad about those idiots. Now, hold on. My sons are not idiots. And if there's anybody to blame for this, it's me. Because I taught my sons to love life and live it to the fullest. And I am proud to be the mother of Dwayne and Denny Mullet. Thanks, Mom. That was really sweet. We got your tickets to WrestleMania. <laughs> WrestleMania? the top 40 music for 72 hours straight. I think it may have damaged my drain. I think any chance to reserve foolishness went straight out the window the second it was revealed that the name of this show was The Mullets. But still, we all learn a valuable lesson. No matter what kind of people you come from, family sticks together. Even if somebody who recently joined the family is reluctant to do the kind of bonding activity everybody else seems to want to do. I don't like wrestling. In fact, I pride myself on being the kind of man who doesn't like wrestling. And I have an image, a public image, that I have to maintain. So therefore, I plan to stay as far away as possible from events like... So now, it's time for our obligatory wrestling crossover since... Once again, this show's premiere episode came on after that night's WWE SmackDown. Only instead of the big show capering as a pizza guy, we get an appearance by one of my all-time favorite tag teams. What? You think I know nothing about the Dudley Boys? A.K.A. Team 3D? A.K.A. the greatest and most decorated tag team in wrestling history? Bubba Ray? Brother Devon? Little Brother Spike, not to mention their valet from the ECW days, Joel Gertner, and dare I forget the legendary legs of the Duchess of Dudleyville, Stacey Keebler, the team who would pioneer the use of smashing people through tables in their matches via the Dudley Death Drop. Come on, I do have a life outside of hell, you know. But again, I digress. Not unlike the big show being a saving grace for Shasta McNasty, the Dudleys do the same thing for this show by giving John O'Hurley some much-needed street cred. 
They're not actually getting hurt up there. Man, hearing this? You damn pointy head. Who does he think he is? Spouting off our fans like that? Later, O'Hurley would become a charter participant on Dancing with the Stars, which would also parlay into his stint as host of Family Feud. So, you can't say this show didn't do something right. We cap this off with Jay Peterman getting his wounds tended by future Dancing with the Stars contestant Stacy Keebler and our mulleted heroes recapping the day's events. Those bruises, they're so lifelike. Nah, it's all special effects. I don't understand what would make Roger do something like this. Special treat for your birthday? Yeah, sort of saying, I respect you and all your many interests. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Damn, I miss Judge Roger. He's got class and cojones. Not only does he belong in his family, he might just be the most extreme of us all. <laughs> Please, get real talk to And so ends the tale of the mullets. A show that I... Honestly, don't know what the problem with it was. It wasn't horrendously bad, like Shasta McNasty ultimately steered away from by its final episode, and it wasn't misunderstood and rushed to judgment like Homeboys in Outer Space was. And in what few reviews I could find for the show, they were still mostly negative. But not the scathing kind of negative reserved for other UPN shows. These reviews were more along the lines of... No, sir. I didn't like it. But the positive ones I could find on Rotten Tomatoes state that it was simply dumb. But the fun kind of dumb. And that kind of dumb is perfectly fine. But for Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein to go from The Simpsons to Mission Hill to... This still feels like the biggest mystery of all. One that we hope to decipher in the Nine Circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Obviously, there has to be at least one reason why we'd even be covering a show like this that's easy to say. The simple fact that out of the 11 shows that were produced, only eight of them aired in the U.S. before getting the axe in March of 2004, making it an easy mark for Limbo. But something I've noticed with the shows that we've been covering here this month is that there seems to be a theme within the theme. That not only are these shows from the same network, but these shows may have been unfairly maligned thanks in no small part to the don't-judge-a-book-by-its-cover axiom. For instance, when it first aired, people were prepared to hate on Homeboys in Outer Space just because of the title of the show. As we found out, the show was corny in some places, but its hate was overall unwarranted. In the case of Shasta McNasty, even though there was plenty to hate about the pilot, it too improved its quality over time. Not enough to redeem itself completely, but I still firmly believe that if the rest of the series was more like their final episode, the show may have stood a chance of staying on the air a little longer. And yes, the mullets are no exception. The premise of this show is that it's two guys with mullet hairdos being themselves and goofing off while trying to get ahead wherever they can sounds perfectly fine for just one episode. 
but this becomes the crux for the bulk of the series. Half of the shows listed in the episode guide shows them trying to get on John O'Hurley's good side, with O'Hurley responding with many an eye-roll directed at them. The rest of the time, it's just one get-rich-quick scheme after another with seemingly little improvement, which, again, seems like pretty standard sitcom fare. That is, until we're reminded of just who is responsible for this standard fare in the first place. Two people who were around during the zenith years of The Simpsons, and two people who were, once again, Ivy League graduates. A Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein production! I don't know if Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein were slumming it at the time, but I still find it a little questionable that both gentlemen, very talented ones at that, would go from riding the waves of success during a sitcom's formative years to making a show that's the complete and polar opposite. This show, hate to say, kind of feels like heresy against their best work. P.S. If either Bill Oakley or Josh Weinstein comes across this podcast by accident, please don't take what I said completely seriously. I'm just genuinely wondering what the connection was between The Simpsons, Mission Hill, and Redneck Roofers. That's all. Otherwise, I will side with the critics that said that the show was dumb fun at its best. Though, I probably need to chug some Pabst Blue Ribbon in order to appreciate it just a little bit better. The mullets earn two out of nine circles of telehell. As for the rest of UPN's history, there were still three years to go in its 11-year lifespan. And there were also many more shows in its history that are worth talking about, many of which will have their own day down here soon enough. And for the most part, the network continued to make its strides in what little time it unknowingly had left. But the ending to this story is going to have to wait a little bit, because in order to close the book on the life of UPN, we must first give equal time to the people that would be both its worthy adversary and eventually its better half. The bills continue to pile, go bankrupt and sound, just pay the electricity, spark up the big screen, and watch the WB. Next time on Telehell, the subject for our next channel surfing theme month is the other side of the coin, as we usher in WB Sember with something that they thought would be considered comedy. Let's say this tiny ass represents the leading sketch comedy show. This junk bucket represents hype. I changed my name for show business. My real name is Britney Spears. Hype premieres Sunday, October 8th on the WB. Until then, if it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Our thanks once again to Connor Higgins of the YouTube channel of the same name. Trust me when I say that this guy can run circles around me when it comes to deep dives on television. And yes, that even includes a full-on history of the UPN network, which, full disclosure, inspired us to do the preceding theme month. So thanks again, Connor, and hopefully we can make up for that crossover next year. As for now, here are the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. 
Our next episode, not counting the prologue to WB December, will be on December 11th, 2022. Until then, you know where to reach us on our socials. And yes, that even includes Twitter. We're sticking around there until the inevitable day that it dies, so why rock the boat now? Either way, find us there and on Facebook both at Telehell Podcast. And of course, if you want to hear premium content, go to Patreon, also at Telehell Podcast. A Bill Oakley Josh Weinstein production!